The Business of Agriculture is brought to you by Land Trust. Have you heard how landowners are increasing profitability by adding recreation to their portfolio of land use? Millions of outdoor recreators seek wide open spaces for bird watching, photography, hunting, fishing, horseback riding, and many other farm and ranch activities. Landowners are partnering with the Recreation Access Network Land Trust. Land Trust is an online platform connecting recreators with landowners for outdoor experiences on their land to increase profitability. Visit landtrust.com/boa as in business of agriculture to learn more. That's landtrust.com/boa. Greetings and welcome to another fantastic episode of the Business of Agriculture podcast. It's me, your host, Damian Mason, with a fantastic episode for you today. Because I'm talking to three women in agriculture, specifically Oregon agriculture. These women uh, are the founders of the companies and are the family members that then let their spouses marry in, too. So it's not the old <laughs> thing about the outlaws marrying in. These are the actual uh, family people. Also, they are in specialized industries that many of you probably don't think that much about. When you go to the hardware store, the grocery, the nursery, I'm sorry, uh, the Home Depot, and you buy a bag of seed because you've got a bald spot in your yard, you're buying seed that these ladies produce. They are members of the Oregon Seed League, where I just did a presentation this morning. I'm recording this in December, uh, and they had their annual conference. So we're talking about the business of grass seed. We're talking about how you actually... Uh, you know, uh, grow something that then these other people buy at a consumer level and put in the ground so they can grow something. Interesting business. Also, great perspective on agribusiness from these relays. I got Shelly Boshart Davis. I've got Brenda Furkatich, and I've got Macy Wessels. Welcome to the Business of Agriculture, ladies. Thank, Thank you so you much for having us. Thanks for having us. All right, us. let's kick off with the one that started it off. Brenda comes up to me, Ms. Furkatich, and she says, I keep up with your Business of Agriculture podcast and, and blah, 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 blah. So tell me about your business, Ms. Brenda. Yes. Well, I farm about a thousand acres. I'm a third generation farmer and we grow grass seed, obviously, and then also hazelnuts, vegetables, vegetable seeds and wheat and clover. So a diverse industry or a diverse farm in our Willamette Valley. Very, very diverse. And then what we should tell people here, we'll go to Macy because she's a native also. Macy, about where we are right now, because when people think of Oregon, uh, especially back in the Corn Belt where I'm from, they think it's a bunch of pine trees, it rains every day and there's a whole bunch of coffee sipping going on. Tell us what happened here in the Willamette Valley. So in the Willamette Valley, it's a diverse, uh, very, very diverse little valley. We have about 350 crops that we grow in this area. Um, we have a lot of rainfall, um, and our summers are dry. Tell me about the rainfall. What's a lot? Is it like 40 inches in the, I get 40 inches of precipitation between snow and, uh, and rain in northeastern Indiana where I am. We don't need to irrigate. You get more than that here. Well, no, we get about 40, 40, 40 inches a year here as well. But ours is unique uh, in the sense that we don't get rainfall during our summers. That's what makes us so amazing at growing grass seed or other seed crops is because we get uh, rain, 40 inches of rain for nine months of the year. And then we get uh, two almost completely dry months. All right. Shelly Boshart Davis, as the other person sitting here, you are in business with her, Macy, in a trucking business. So let's talk about that with Shelly. What do you do besides you don't drive a truck, but you own a trucking company. You're a state representative, among other things, and you're in agriculture. Talk to me. Yes. So in business with Macy, uh, her and I three years ago bought out my parents, Bossart Trucking, that has 35 trucks and also a, a custom straw baling operation. So we will bale about um, 20 to 25,000 acres every summer. 
we take that grass straw, press it, containerize it, and ship it over to Korea and Japan as feed for cattle. And so we handle that operation, uh, the exports, as well as the trucking and the straw baling. Um, so if you're listening to this, you're saying, wait a minute, these chicks, this is not just some little thing like uh, where they go to the farmer's market with a uh, half acre of cucumbers. These chicks are legit. Well, hell yes. You think they're on here because I just thought it was cute? No, because they're smart agrarian women. All right. So let's go back to my girl, Brenda. Um, your business, thousand acres that you and your husband operate, uh, parents still involved? No, we actually bought um, them out about five years ago. Okay, and so split it up, um, grass. Uh, how much of the 1,000 acres is in grass for seed? We're usually about 50% grass seed. Okay, and then you uh, talk about how that works because there's people are going to say, how does this work? So the customer goes to the, the nursery and buys five pounds of Scott's Turf Builder, uh, or not Turf, whatever the hell it's called, uh, the bluegrass, whatever this thing is. Talk to me about everything that happens between me going to the nursery and buying a bag of seed and you yeah so we plant um into the ground and we plant every about three to five years on average so we actually leave it in the ground and harvest crops off that so we're not turning the soil every year which is an important piece to us um, as we go through then once those crops come out we go in um, for harvest specifically we cut the grass like macy mentioned we have about two months of dry season so our harvest is usually july through august uh, we go in and we cut it or swath it and then we let it cure down and then we come and combine it yeah and the person that's listening to this because I, I i know that i know what that means but the person yep. that maybe like doesn't fully maybe they work in the canning business or they're in uh, some other thing swathing it because uh they might know what a combine is that's the thing that combined cutting threshing and separation you know it goes use it for soybeans corn wheat everything you can't do that with grass uh let's kick it to our girl macy because she knows that why can't we do it with grass why are we swathing this stuff well, we're using what we have here, which is the dry weather. So we take and we uh, swath it, which we do well, generally well at night or as there's still moisture in the grass seed itself. And uh, that way the grass seed doesn't fall off the stem. Because the if you try seed, yeah. the literal seed, it, yeah. if you try to do it when it's too dry, the grass seed will actually fall onto the ground and so we swath at night or when there's some moisture in the ground and uh, then use mother nature to then dry out that so that when we take the combine through it separates naturally so it's that's that's what we do and swathing if you're not familiar essentially is it's a mower that then lays the entire plant out or everything you've cut into a windrow is that the yes. way that's yeah. way yep. to put it? okay exactly. and then you're letting mother nature you do that when it's still moist so the seed doesn't shatter out of it okay so the listener is saying, wait a minute, what is this all about, grass seed? I mean, I don't get it. Well, they know what it looks like when it comes in the bag, but you're growing a grass that looks similar to my yard, except for it's in a field, and then you let it head out. Like uh, like your neighbor's yard who doesn't mow. Uh -huh. That's whose yard we're dealing with. Yeah. So how, how tall is the stuff that you go out and swath? Oh, anywhere from knee high to sometimes shoulder high with some varieties. Okay. And if I let my yard go, would it ever look like that? Oh, probably. I mean, most grasses want to go to seed. They want to grow, you know, if you have the right conditions and things like that. But what's different is on a production side, we're putting in more nutrients. We're yeah. taking care of that crop. We're yeah. removing the weeds. So it will look a lot different in the seed sense than it would in. Yeah. Lawn. Even though the, the nicest yard in the neighborhood where they've got Kim lawn or new, uh, whatever it's called, uh, true green coming out and spraying it. You guys are doing a lot more than that. You're touching it pretty regularly. You know, fungicides, insecticides, herbicides to make it a crop. How many pounds of seed am I getting off of an acre of? 
of this grass crop that you produce? You're hoping for about 2,000 pounds mm-hmm. per a acre. A ton per acre mm-hmm. of seed. And it's also little itty bitty stuff. Yes. So how do I keep that from blowing out the back of the combine? Uh, well, the settings themselves on the combine are what keeps it from blowing out the back of the combine. So you have some really tight screens on this. Yes, you have very tight screens, and we also go very slow. Uh-huh. So I would, in comparison to other combines that do other crops, this is a very slow process. Okay. We're talking like 0.9 to 2.5 miles an hour. Yeah, yeah. as yeah. opposed to 4 miles per hour Correct. from shelling corn, let's say. Yep. Okay, so let me hear about this uh, this thing from your perspective, Shelly. You are a grass grower, or you just do the straw? Yeah, my family is. We'll, we'll farm... Um, my dad and brother still farm grass seed and hazelnuts um, and then we take over the straw side so as they're talking about combining the straw that gets blown out the back end of the combine now is grass straw and so we will then come in as soon as that's done we don't have to wait any uh, we can literally be in the same field with the combine Mm -hmm. as soon as the grower calls us and lets us know that it's ready to go we can come in with a rake we'll rake it into a windrow again Mm -hmm. and then we come in with the baler stack it up um, and then we come in with our trucks pick it up off the field into storage barns and eventually to the press so these so obviously they, they've got what they need out they got the seed the seed and i want to hear more about that in a minute but since we're under the, the straw you're bailing up the grass straw and it's already dried out and it's uh it's it's just uh it's a byproduct obviously you own the balers you have custom people that come and do that for you we uh in some cases in some operations they uh have that custom but we own all of our own balers ourselves you use the big rectangular squares big yep. squares are called? All of ours are crones, and they're going to be the 3 by 4 by 8 bales. And that, uh, how much does that weigh when it's uh, coming out of the field? 1,100 to 1,200 pounds on average. 1,100 to 1,200 pounds, and then it goes into a warehouse. And then you said your straw goes overseas. So I, I could buy this off you if I wanted, but your marketplace essentially is Asia. Yes. Most uh, of the time here in here in America, you know, we use pasture. In Japan and Korea, they don't have pasture ground. So they're actually importing the the fiber of the cow's diet. Okay. So if they, if they want to produce beef in some of these more... Or, uh, population population dense areas they buy your stuff and it's you're not even shipping it is that 1100 pound bale either right no we're taking it to our press we own two hay pressing machines which takes the twine off of it goes through a process presses it cuts it slices it into either 25 kg which is about 50 55 pounds um, or we do a big bale uh, which is about 450 kg depends on what the customer wants put it into a container and eventually so just uh, the person might be saying okay i've driven down the road i've seen these bales uh and they weigh 1100 pounds and they're pretty tight you're taking it and making it even more dense from there to where it's like a cube basically doubling the density of it and that's because containers are so expensive Uh we're trying to put as maximize those containers put as much weight in the container which will maximize them about fifty-five thousand pounds um, per container to then ship overseas going back to my girl brenda over here two thousand pounds of grass seed comes out of that grass field Yes. Okay, uh, that's a lot. I yeah. mean, that's a ton of grass because grass seed don't weigh nothing. I mean, it, it's you know a five pound bag of it is you know this big, mm-hmm. so two thousand pounds of it. What happens after it's it's in your field and then where does it go? So we're gonna truck it off and we take it to a seed cleaner. So some growers own their own seed cleaner, some take it to a custom cleaner. And from there, we dump it into a pit, it goes into bins, it's either cleaned right away and removed of all weeds, seeds, chaff, all of that. I've read the label, they don't guarantee it's 100%. They'll say this, they'll say this grass seed is- I'll get is, you some grass seed. They Daniel. say this grass seed is, they say if you go to the hardware store and you buy yourself your five pound bag of grass seed, it says this is guaranteed to be 97% pure. So that means you're giving me 3% 
person at dandelion seeds <laughs> and cockleburr. Yeah, poa annua. Nasty. Yeah. Okay, so it goes to a cleaner. Do you own your own cleaner? Um, I, my family is a partner in one, yes. Uh-huh. So it's a bit like when cotton people maybe cooperatively own their own cotton gin or something like that. Mm-hmm. So you guys own one, you use it yourself, the other owner uses it, and then you let people come and pay you to do use That's the cleaner. That's correct, yep. All right, so then do you take it back or does it go from there on to the next value-added process? No, then it moves on. So from that point, it's then bagged into usually 50-pound bags mm-hmm. um, and then put on pallets. And it, sometimes it's exported from the cleaner and then other times the seed companies that we grow for uh, because we don't own our own seed. So the seed companies that we then grow for come and pick it up. Sometimes they put it in their own branded bag and then they move it forward from there with their own value-added products. Okay, so are you doing this on a contract? Uh, yes, every, right. a majority of everything we grow on our farm, everything we grow is on contract. And then I would say in the Valley, it's a high, high percentage. Macy, explain what that means to the person that's like, what are they talking about on a contract? That means that you didn't want to take the risk to put out, in her case, 500 acres of seed of grass and not even where to go with it, right? So you've already got your buyer locked in? Correct. So in the case of like contracted seed, it's their technology. They're paying money and research to come up with different types of seed because each seed has technology in it, whether it's salt tolerant, drought tolerant, or Uh, other specifics in that seed Mm -hmm. so it's actually the seed companies that own the proprietary rights to that seed so they contract with the growers to grow their seed and so once it's cleaned it is then sold to the seed company who then at that point decides where it goes so what's interesting every time I ever have a dialogue with non-ag people uh, we'll go over here to Shelly because she's got uh, commentary I know they always say there's a lot more to this than I thought I'm like yeah, this isn't just some guy here with his bib overalls walking around barefooted with a pitchfork. This is actually a business. Uh, you would say, yeah, there's a hell of a lot going on behind the scenes. You know, the customer gets really good seed to put out and make their yard, but there's all this stuff behind the scenes. Were you familiar with this growing up your whole life? Yes, absolutely. And do, you, do you have the dialogue with non-ag people like I just described? Oh, absolutely. And I love talking about it because there's so much more than, I mean, just look at us three. We don't fit the profile of what somebody may have envisioned as a farmer. Uh-huh. And so, but there's so from the from the fuel guy to the warehouse guy to the tractor operator to the sales to every aspect of it, it's truly the business of agriculture. Uh, and you know what? I really like that. That's a nice tie-in. So <laughs> while we're at that little tie-in of her promoting my business of agriculture podcast, I'd like to remind you that in addition to the fantastic sponsor I have uh, for this that you heard about in the intro, I also am working with Extreme Ag. If you are a farmer looking to up your game, especially in commodity production, you should check out the work I'm doing for Extreme Ag. Extreme Ag, that's X-T-R-E-M-E Ag dot farm. Yield-setting, record-setting farmers doing trials for some of the major companies that you probably deal with every day, and we're producing this content so that you can learn from their mistakes and also from their successes. So check out ExtremeAg.Farm and go to the Cutting the Curve podcast. All right, back to our girl Brenda, because I like to keep uh, bouncing around because you guys have a lot of good stuff to say. Um, This product, then, is the other thing that somebody might say. Uh, my neighbors in Arizona, is it true that Monsanto forces farmers to buy their seed? I'm like, no, that's not true at all. You've been watching too many documentaries that are, are ridiculous. Your seed that you start with comes from like another country. I, uh, a friend of mine out here, a guy I was talking to, says that New Zealand, like they're getting mm-hmm. seed. So the seed that you start with to grow the grass, to make seed, to then give to the consumer, where does it come from? 
comes from all over, but a lot also comes from Oregon. Where, okay. Yeah, right here. So, you come from your own stuff. Yeah, yeah. Right. There's there's a mix of it. And there's, a, and there's a company that's developing it and saying, we want this to be drought tolerant, or, mm-hmm. or one of my red is traffic. Like, if you're going to plant some grass, it's going to get driven over a lot. Correct. Okay. Uh, probably something specific for, like, football fields or something like that. Yeah, there's breeding for a darker color. There's breeding for salt tolerance. There's breeding for colder weather. There's breeding for um, soils in the south. So there's all different types of breeding. Um, it's a very sophisticated thing, and it's the companies quite honestly spend millions. So the the seed that you that makes it to the NFL football game mm-hmm. uh, has millions of dollars behind it for that type of breeding, so that you get it just the right green, and so it's just tolerant enough to take all the that cleat action. So. Yeah, there's yeah. there's science behind it. I like it. Cleat action. Uh, cleat action. Now, you know, I've never actually picked up a bag of seed that talked about cleat action. I like that. Okay, so um, how do you get paid? Does a contract give you ahead of time? They say, you're going to make this much per pound? <laughs> Oh, well, let's start from there. Okay. No, uh, no, it doesn't. Because, for instance, you're profitable. You know, we're not going to pull that little farmer thing. I ain't made no money. You're making money. But this was a tough, 2021 was a tougher year, I'm told, because your yields were down. Right. So um, in Oregon, it's a little bit different. We we have contracts, and they're pretty long-term contracts. I mean, like I said, three to five to seven, sometimes 10-year contracts. Um, Within that contract are basically the parameters of the seed that you deliver. So weed seed tolerance purity, all of that in there. If you meet that contract, then the market drives the yearly contract um, or the yearly price, excuse me, per pound. So there is, we do have a bargaining association in Oregon um, that is active and meets every year and often creates a somewhat market price for the industry. But also seed companies individually with farmers are able to also get a price agreed upon. Uh-huh. So it is tricky um, because you don't know the price of that as you're putting in all your inputs until much later in the year, sometimes after harvest even. And often our terms are not paid until the following May 1st is your drop dead <laughs> deadline. So you may, you may be putting, when do you put your seed in the ground? In the fall. And then sometimes you said you're actually using the same field three to five years, so Mm -hmm. you're not even putting in seed every year. Correct. But you're still harvesting beginning in May, June? June? July. July. Mm -hmm. How many harvests do you get? Just one. You only get one harvest. Yes. Because it's like a wheat in that regard or something like this. Yeah, exactly. So you get one harvest in July, and then you may not get your money until 10 months later? Correct. So you're you're carrying some float. Yeah, big time. So you might go to a lender, and then they might have to line you up with some operating money. It's not not unheard of. I would say more common than not that there's operating loans going around okay. because you can't yeah. float that. Like so, you said, you can't be the bank. For so everybody. the price was set on a per pound basis. It is. Price is set after the well, right before the harvest. Actually, right before after right harvest, before yeah. the harvest is when the price is set. So you're planting without knowing what your price is. Okay, that's tough. Mm-hmm. Very tough. And, and just real quick, with, with grass straw, it's the same thing. We don't know the price of that grass straw per ton. We pay on a per ton basis, and uh, there's a lot that goes into that since we're, everything's going to Japan and Korea from exchange rates to what's coming out of Australia and China um, and container rates. So there's a lot that goes into it, and those uh, farmers aren't being paid until after the harvest as well. You don't pay your people that you and, and you strike your deals for the straw. Yes. Like right now, it's it's December. Are you going and saying, hey, uh, Brent? 
Amanda, I'm going to buy your straw next uh, July. We own it after the harvest. So we have it in our warehouses and we're just paying for it after the harvest. Are you buying, but you're, but you're buying the stuff that's yet to come. No, no. You don't we, bought, we bought the stuff that came in. We bought yeah. the stuff that came in. Yeah. You don't have it bought. You don't have it pre-bought. You don't have her acres pre-bought. No. You, have, you don't have acres lined up. We have acres lined up just through relationships with farmers, but they're in the straw side of things, typically not contractual. It's not a contractual thing. So you, it's a handshake. you've got a handshake. And then if they say in July, you know, I decided I don't want you to bail it, you're out. Um, yes, that happens randomly. Um, but relationship wins the day most of the time. Can you can you tell me how much you're paying for that straw? Um, any, the last year, the last time you did so? Yeah, anywhere from, it depends on the variety, anywhere from $30 to $75 per ton. Okay, and an uh, acre of grass seed produces five tons? Uh, last year was bad. <laughs> Three <laughs> but tons? But anywhere from a ton and a half to four tons per acre. Four tons is a high end, one mm -hmm. and a half tons is a low end, okay. Mm -hmm. All right, how important is the straw for your revenue? It's very important. It's okay. something that um, is a true byproduct. Yeah. We also don't have a lot of tools to manage the straw after harvest if we didn't bail it off. Okay. And it brings a lot of pests. So for us, we're looking at slugs, we're looking at voles, we're looking at creating an atmosphere that they want to be in. Okay. So we need to get that So getting off. the straw gone is residue that would only just harbor pests or parasites or mm -hmm. vermin or whatever for you, which disease. is something you don't yep. want, disease. Exactly. And so you're getting income off it, plus you're getting rid of something that you need to get rid of anyway. Correct. So can basically, I, so can basically I, you should pay her. Well, <laughs> I mean, I feel it used to be, and I know where you're going with this. Yeah. So historically, uh, in the Willamette Valley specifically, we used to burn, but burning has been banned here. So well, you burn, burn off the straw by regulation. Then you don't, by regulation. Then you get rid of the problem. Yes. And you also didn't have to handle a product. You just went out there and lit it. Yeah, we went out and lit it. It also took care of pests. It took care of uh, putting nutrients back in the soil. Seed and bank. Weed seed bank. Yeah. yeah, the whole nine yards. We used to burn this product. And so uh, because of regulation, because of legislation, uh, we no longer can burn off this, this byproducts. So farmers being farmers had to figure out what to do with it. So initially, yes. So initially uh, they would actually pay people to come and bail it and try to get rid of it because this is a lot of product. Right. right? This is we're one of the largest exporters of this product because it's so dense and there's so much of it. Yep. We had to figure out what to do with it. And so, like I said, it took farmers initiative to go over and figure out a market yeah. for this product that we could no longer just burn off. And it doesn't stay local because there's less demand for it locally. Correct. There's almost no demand for it locally. <laughs> so <laughs> you, you got to be find people that have less land and more hungry cattle that want this, because if you wanted to sell it to the feed yard up the road, they'd say, ah, we already got what we need exactly it, it, there is no market for it here do you uh, to get paid then from your asian customers uh shelly you have to then say uh here's the total digestible nutrient value of this you pulling feed samples and things like that we do pull feed samples we also test for endophyte which is a, a fungus that's uh, bred into the grass and so some varieties will have more than others so we test for endophyte because the cows they need to know that for the cows so that's those are two things that Isn't we that test what for. causes like hoof problems or something yeah, for cattle uh, in fescue it calls um, it's fescue foot, and in ryegrass, it's some sort of like shaking uh, syndrome. So we test both of those products. Annual ryegrass doesn't have endophyte in it. Yep. Um, so we do test 
on that. Um, but uh, yeah, that's ironically, endophyte is what makes it a good uh, seed itself. So endophyte is what makes the seed strong. So any kind of turf grass, anything that has to hold up to any kind of thing, should have endophyte in it for it to be a better seed. Which is why fescue is planted on places that you drive over a lot that have to hold the sides of hills. It's not worth a damn for cattle feed, or it's bad for cattle feed, but it's great for holding, holding the side of a hill that you can drive on. Yes. So if you take the endophyte out, it's a great feed, but it won't hold up to cattle or any kind of traffic. Right, right. So, uh, Okay. <clears throat> There's a whole bunch of stuff going on here with these agricultural lays. Um, in addition to your grass thing, uh, they've got a trucking company. You did hazelnuts. Um, always have? Yeah, we planted our first orchard in 1990, so when I was a kid. Okay, and now you're harvesting hazelnuts. Tell me what happens with that, just because I'm curious. Yeah, it's uh, mostly actually... Goes to coffee? Hazelnut coffee? <laughs> yeah. It's a flavor. It's a it's, flavoring you know, agent? It, does, it is a flavoring agent, um, but our biggest market is China. We sell about seven, 60 to 70% of the Oregon hazelnuts go overseas to China. Really? And they actually um, brine them, salt them, and then they crack them just a little bit and eat them at, like pistachios like pistachio. for a salt, mm-hmm. or uh, for a snack, sorry. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so that's where most of our hazelnuts go, but we are really trying to um, we're putting in more acres because of uh, blight resistant varieties that are coming along through research and so because of that there's been this huge surge in planting of hazelnuts through this valley or filberts um, and because of that we're able to get into more domestic markets filberts yes mm-hmm. what is They're this? also called filberts <laughs> originally called filberts a uh, hazelnut is yeah yes here, right. here in oregon yes okay so i didn't know that all right so <laughs> these hazelnuts then uh i put it you stuck a tree in the ground in 1990 when did you get your first product <laughs> well it took about 10 years Whoa. and my dad they're old variety and uh my dad said look we got our first check and my mom looked at him and it was for four dollars <laughs> she goes great investment yeah. and they're still married so i can make these jokes but yeah. she was just like what in the world so because it wasn't a common crop at the time how many acres so. of hazelnut trees uh, we're about 135 right now. So it takes a lot of human hands to touch that? You know, it's not too bad. We've started to automate as much as we can. Um, there is still quite a bit of pruning and stacking and managing. Stacking? Uh, stacking the pruning. Okay, the you don't grind them up or? We don't. We push them and burn them. Oh. Uh, well, we have a tell lot. people in Oregon you're burning stuff. Oh, I know. We have Only a lot of on disease. Burn days. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, no, we have a lot of disease. I talked about the blight, yeah. um, and so we need to get that that disease. Because you push out. them in, then you burn them, and then these trees need pruned. So that's a lot of human hands using uh, using H2A labor. What are you doing on that? No, we're just using local labor. But I'm I'm talking we're low labor. Can in comparison to other um, places, we're hiring anywhere from maybe six to seven people a year. We're four full-time employees, including myself and my husband, and then we hire about six or eight other people additionally. So we're still very low labor. You say that, remember, we're talking, the average person that lives in the suburbia, and we'd say, oh, they're just a simple farmer. You've got four full-time owners slash employees, plus you hire six or eight people uh, throughout the year. This is not some, this is not some little teeny, you know, this is not some little hobby. No, it is absolutely not a hobby. <laughs> this is our livelihood. This is our lifestyle. We love it. But you're right. It, it takes a lot to to become a good business. Um, I think that's one of the pieces that our generation and, and even the generation before um, is kind of morphing farms into you have to be a business to survive. You have to have that. There's no question. There's yeah. no question. Yeah. So from a diversification standpoint, let's just do a thing if you're okay with it. Percentage of gross revenue from each source. Uh, grass seed is the is the ship that leads the fleet, right? Yep. All right. Yep. Grass seed. Straw. 
How much? Uh, grass seed is, is, uh, is it more than half? Yeah. Is it 70%? Oh, I'd say probably 65 to 70. Okay, so let's call it 70% of revenue grass seed. Grass straw that uh, Shelly comes and makes. Um, it's... Five or 10% of revenue? It's not a lot. I mean, I'd say two. Okay, a single digit. Hazelnuts. Yeah. Oh, it's a word of... Gosh, where am I at now? All I don't know. Percentages. Twenty-eight. Jeez. You got twenty-eight remaining. <laughs> okay, perfect. Let's give it a. We haven't put in government payments yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's give it an eighteen percent, and the uh, rest is other crops. Okay, and those other crops being uh, wheat, clover for seed, and, and then also vegetable seeds and vegetables. So you do grow some of the specialty stuff for that. All right, yes. Macy over here chipped in and said uh, she gave a percentage thing. Uh, your farming operation it consists of what? Uh, grass seed. Uh, last year I grew peas and. So I do rotational crops as well. Those rotational crops are because you've got to not have some, not have grass on those acres to get rid of pests and things that build Correct. up in the soil. Correct. So you tear up a field of grass that's been grass for three or four or five years. Correct. And you put in? Uh, peas, wheat, whatever I feel like would be a great rotation for that ground. And peas, what, is that peas like I put in my freezer or are these um, a different kind of a pea? Uh, no, these are sprouting peas and they go overseas. Okay. So it's something that they eat, but it's it's, it's, for, a, Asian, it's for human consumption, yeah. but it's for Asian Asian diets that not American diets. Correct. Okay. So how do you even know about that? Who who came to you and said you should do this? How do you find a market for that? There's a different seed companies in the area that that's all they specialize in is okay. some kind of. Like, so they said we need these, and yeah. then they fill the market. Is that grown on a contract also, Macy? It is. Okay. So you were already set on what you're going to make per pound or per bushel on those. Correct. All right. Yes. And then you teamed up with Shelly and started a trucking company. Shelly, what's the deal? Oh, you didn't start it. You bought it. Mm -hmm. uh, your mom and dad had this thing, and then you said, let's own a trucking company. And then <laughs> It'll be you, fun. And so why did you decide to team up with Macy on that? Uh, yeah, wow. You so wanted to stick her with the work? <laughs> wow. He's insightful. <laughs> wow. Have you already read our story? Uh, <laughs> Incredible. Uh, dad mom started it in 83. My dad's farmed grass seed his whole life. But big family, he had to diversify. So um, they started in 83 with two trucks, grew up from there and um, went back to farming. And along the way, uh, as grass straw, as we were talking, developed yep. in this valley, he yep. bought balers and he trucked it and then he bought barns and then he stored it and then he built a press and then we became vertically integrated. Um, about that time, I was uh, getting out of college and uh, with a business degree and uh, international sales uh, degree and um, we went direct and so i came into it at that time and so we've we've done the whole process and kind of grew it from yeah uh, so you mid 90s you got some integration going on but you don't you do own some acres of of grass mm -hmm. my, my dad does yes and so your your involvement is you might come into that or buy it or however that thing should work out who knows we know how these things happen but you own the you do own trucks you own some balers. You also contract out and have other people do balers. You own not most of the land. You're covering 25,000 acres. That's mm -hmm. other people's. Yep. Do you own the press? Your uh, father yes. owns the press? Yes. Yep. So our family owns the press and the international sales Is company. Is that something that you're going to buy? Uh, yes, eventually. And then you're going to bring Macy in on that? Yes. So the press... And then the, the warehousing. Yes. And then uh, what else is there? The international sales 
like company. A, it's a company that mm -hmm. essentially is it's it doesn't have a lot of assets though. Right. It's essentially a, it's a business entity in that it, it does things. Yep. Uh, what else? Is that enough diversification? Uh, we actually did just recently bought another company, uh, trucking company, to diversify. It's the first time we've done anything outside of agriculture. Is that you and Macy? Yes. Mm -hmm. Macy, tell me about this trucking thing. Did you always want to be in the trucking business? <laughs> No, I didn't. <laughs> I, I didn't even know anything about really the trucks. I um, had worked for a seed company uh, for for quite a few years and also ran their logistics while I was there. So I always enjoyed working with truck drivers, I guess. But Shelly said, hey, uh, there's a business opportunity. You should look at this. And I said, okay. And so, really, I learned as I went. Since we call it the Business of Agriculture podcast, and if you don't want to divulge these numbers, you don't have to. But again, I, I'm always struck by people that live in the suburbs and have a nice house and a decent job, and they think that they have uh, money going on. I say, you realize I know people in ag that at any given moment have a million dollars of capital just blowing in the wind. And it's not carelessly blowing in the wind. It's just that it's a, it's a, it's a crop. It's, it's uh, a trucking company. It's whatever. You've got a lot of capital deployed or a lot of things going on mm -hmm. uh acres then the trucks where's what's your split on that even on a percentage basis uh i have about 450 acres that i farm personally and then the rest is split with shelly i'd say time wise i spend 70 percent on the trucking side and 30 percent on my own farming side and then it's it's probably 50 50 as far as far as what i make as far as revenue, revenue. yeah. As, as far as revenue, right so, now all we do is draw salaries from our trucking business because we're paying for it, and we'll be paying for it for a long time. What about the farming operation? Who? What's the labor look like? She's got herself and her husband and two other family people, and then six or eight employees. What's your farming operation got in the way of how many people are, does it take to keep it going? Uh, on my farming operation, it's myself, and then I have. I, I'm looking right now for probably one full-time person that will work there year-round, and then I hire three during the summer. And then I also use my daughter's uh, 15, so I also use <laughs> quite a few high schoolers for things like pruning and different things like that. And you can get them. Uh, yeah, but again, that that has to do with being local and, and sourcing local. Um, for instance, in our trucking company, we hire about 30 to 40 kids during the summer. That's unique in our area because you have to get special permits. Mm -hmm. And so Shelly is like a master at working through. And Well, she got elected a state representative, and we know then where the graft works and how you can sort of finagling <laughs> the power structure and uh, no, she, walk things through the state house. She didn't become a legislator until after we bought the business <laughs> so we were already she she had already navigated all the red tape of working with teenagers uh the 450 acres owned partial owned partial rented partial owned par partial rented okay what's the ownership situation look like did you inherit some of that or you just started buying it when you no. were young no uh i came back to the family farm uh maybe 15, 20 years ago, uh, right when my dad had a heart attack. And so um, I was actually on the family farm for five years. And at that time, I bought uh, a piece of ground right next to my parents. Mm -hmm. And so I started farming that. And then the rest of it is uh, leased ground that I have long-term leases with. Uh, dollars uh, in play at any time, Shelley. Besides, uh, besides, okay, the trucking, the the Eagle bike. What's it cost? What do you think it would cost right now if you bought the thing that presses these bales? Oh, uh, one point five million dollars. Just one one machine. 
And that doesn't include the acres or the... Uh, oh, that's just the machine. That's not the structure that's that That's just the in. hay pressing machine, but every baler is going to be, what is it now, probably one dollars to $200,000 mm-hmm. for one baler. A big square baler. And that doesn't include the tractor to right, pull it. Yeah. Right, right, And we right. have eight. You have eight balers? Yeah. Eight balers, and then you have the tractors as well. Yep. And then you've got to keep those crude. And we have eight rakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and stackers. And, and the stackers. And yeah. the different, yeah, squeezes. You have $3 million worth of machinery? Yeah, more. 4.5. 4.5 on the farm machinery. That doesn't count the trucks? No, that includes the trucks. That includes the trucks. Mm-hmm. But yeah. not steer. Trucks aren't worth much after so many years. Right. So unless you have compared, new stuff. Compared to a tractor and a hay baler, a semi-trailer, a semi-truck is actually, or even a semi-truck and a flatbed is kind of. Five years after you buy a truck, it's pretty much obsolete. Five years after you buy a tractor, it still has value. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Uh, all right, so you're three women in agriculture operating in Oregon. Uh, there's a lot of people that work in states that are not as, say, legislative, regulatory. Uh, I, I get the impression that probably you had to jump through a few more hoops here, but you also have a unique climate. You, uh, you've got some uh, crops that we would never grow in most of the other part of the world. Things are a little different out here. Give it to me from your perspective, starting with Brenda. Yeah, absolutely. Oregon is a very unique place, um, especially... You know, we have a very diverse state, but especially in the valley here, we have this really interesting, um, we're farming right next to cities. We have a land use system in the state that protects farmland. Um, but we also have a lot of regulation that comes down on us that is, you know, we're often seen as sort of the, let's go and try it in Oregon and see if we can shut things down in Oregon. Yeah. And I think that's been a real challenge for us. Um, Maisie, real quickly, because she says the valley, to the person that's not worked out here like me, so I've worked inland, if you will, where you go over the Cascades and all of a sudden it gets high and dry and rolly and it looks like, what the hell, this isn't what I thought. I tell her by that only the western one-third of Oregon looks like what people think Oregon looks like. And then you're within, there's pine trees and there's moisture and then also in the valley. Tell me where the valley goes from. South of Portland to where? Uh, just south of Portland to just south of Eugene. And it would be the, so it's maybe a 145 mile or no 120 mile stretch ish and and 20 miles wide 20 miles wide give or take if you uh, head to the west we hit the coast and if you head to the east you hit a mountain range and if you keep going east in our state you will hit desert high desert low desert all of it so we have a very diverse state and almost all the population and almost all the dollar uh, value-added agriculture happens in this area right here. Correct. The people are all between Corvallis, Eugene, Salem, and Portland. Correct. And the moisture is here and the crops are here. Correct. And then when you go out there, it's just the hinterlands. When you go out there, you hit cattle and wheat country. Mm-hmm. So. Or, or nothing. Or nothing. <laughs> a lot of nothing. There is nothing. Shelly, what's separate? What's different about agriculture? What's different about agriculture and being in business in agriculture in Oregon versus other places? You've only ever lived here, presumably. Well, a little bit somewhere else, just for a year or two. But um, here we are. We are geographically located to have massive opportunity. We have the Pacific Ocean, and we've got Asia on the other side. And so, if we could, we have challenges in our port systems, yeah. in our transportation, yep. legislatively. They're going after diesel. They're yeah. going after. Um, um, all, all of those things that we just talked about. But we can grow the best in the world. 
we just have to be able to get it to market. And then there's also the environmental aspect. You said going after diesel. Uh, wasn't there something on uh, the Columbia River so that you couldn't use the, you couldn't send barges down it because uh, a salmon was imperiled or some such thing? There's always, always something from the spotted owl uh, back in the 80s to uh, cap and trade that we fought in the legislature um, in 2019, um, in 2020. So there is always something here. Um, it will always be something. And so we have to be uh, smart, efficient. Um, and we are not sure what's going to be around the regulatory corner for us. Some logging people about 20 years ago when the whole spotted owl thing was going on because it was shutting down the entire timber industry uh, came up with a t-shirt that said, if two teenagers can mate in the back of a Ford Pinto, why does a spotted owl need 10,000 acres? <laughs> I don't know if I've ever <laughs> seen that. That is awesome. Uh, all right, so uh, <laughs> closing it up here on the Business of Ag podcast with three smart ladies in agriculture, in Oregon agriculture, it's Shelly Bozhart-Davis, Brenda Furkatich, and Macy West uh, last thing, what uh, Oregon's Oregon's uniqueness? What else did I not cover, Macy? That you think that we forgot to cover? Uh, you know, you got a lot going on. Are you excited about the future? Ooh, so I think right now it's hard to look at it from the future, just because uh, our our politics here are very unfavorable for what we do. So um, trucking, agriculture, trucking, agriculture, uh, all of the it. politics of Oregon would yes. rather have uh, everybody just hangs out and smokes dope and drinks coffee, parks and, and wetlands, and, yes, and hikes. And we have bikes. a lot of people that move into our state because it's green and because it's beautiful, and then want to change it. So uh-huh. that happens all of the time, and so um, it's a little scary. I think that when you look towards retirement this is maybe a state that if you didn't have farming you definitely would leave so there's some challenges with geographically there's challenges politically uh are you excited about you still being in business uh you know as a woman in agriculture you've done well you're okay you're happy I love doing what I do. I love working with the truck drivers. I love working in agriculture. I love all the farmers. I love the people that I get to work with. I love working with Shelly. I love all of that. I hate our state politics and I hate our regulation. I I like it. Uh, (laughs) Brenda, uh, this is a little bit, you know, I'm a touch older than you, but there was a time when people would have tried to say that women aren't welcome in agriculture. Have you ever had that? Because it doesn't seem like that's the case. Certainly not, doesn't seem the case to me. uh, But give me your perspective. Yeah, I think Oregon's, a unique place like I I've never felt like why are you here kind of a feeling um, I think Shelly has often said that she looks forward to the day when women in agriculture is no longer a headline yeah because we have actually yeah. a huge percentage of women in this state who yeah. are participating who are coming to meetings who are learning yeah. right alongside their husbands or you know right behind their dads or right behind their moms and th- that sort of thing so I think it's changing fast in Oregon and I love to see that Shelly, uh, one thing that we not cover, we not talk about that I forgot to ask about the the business that you guys do because I'm really impressed with what happened here. There's, you know, a lot of a lot of, lot of forward thinking with what you three are doing, and uh, I haven't heard any excuses. Uh, I, I've liked it, but uh, what did I not ask you that I should have asked? I hope that people are looking at agriculture as a career and not just not just the farming side of it. Mm-hmm. It's massive. It mm-hmm. could be the sales part of it internationally. It could be um, in ag banking. It could be in fuels. It could be in research. Mm-hmm. And so I just hope that uh, we continue to uh, be voices and faces and um, be part of that future of agriculture because it's going to be there. I don't know what it looks like exactly, but it's going to be there. Well, I think you three are uh, going to inspire some people, and I hope you do. And, you know, the entrepreneurial side of it, I don't know if we necessarily need any more ag bankers. I've also said I'm not sure we need more. I'm not sure. We, well, I'm just because uh, you know it's 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 pretty it's pretty saturated. Frankly, it really is. Yeah, we'll need some, but we we also we, I, I you know the entrepreneurial side of it. When you talked about 
uh, you know, hey, there's this byproduct. Let's let's bail it up. Let's compress the hell out of it, and let's find a market for it. That's the kind of entrepreneurial stuff that I think is inspirational that'll come out of all this. Her name's Shelly Bozhart Davis. She is a state representative here in Oregon. She also is a farmer, an entrepreneur, and a trucking company owner. If they want to get a hold of you for any reason, how do they find you? I'm I'm looking at maybe going to your website. Uh, just Google at Shelly Bossart Davis, and you will definitely find some way to get a hold of me for sure. Um, on Twitter, um, Bossart Davis Ag. Also on Instagram, Bossart Davis Ag. On uh, Facebook, Shelly Bossart Davis. And then Macy uh, has uh, the trucking company Bossart Davis, and that's Bossart B O S H A R T BossartTrucking.com. Or if if they want to get a hold of you, is that the way to start? Yeah, Macy at BossartTrucking.com. And then if anybody has a question to you, and you have a blog also, Brenda Furkatich, talk to me about uh, it's or farmer. Talk to me. Uh, yes, Oregon farmer, OR farmer. And then also uh, Brenda Furkatich at KirschFamilyFarms.com. Nobody is going to ever no know one. how okay. to do Okay, Go to NuttyGrass.com, N-U-T-T-Y Grass.com, and then you can click the contact me, <laughs> and then that's where I will be, and I will answer back. This, this has been a lot of fun. I thank you guys for being on the Business of Agriculture. That's Macy, Brenda, and Shelly, and uh, maybe they'll come and talk to me again in a couple of years about their next business venture. Till next time, it's the Business of Agriculture. Thanks, ladies. Thank Thank you. This episode of The Business of Agriculture was brought to you by Land Trust. Landowners just like you are increasing profitability by adding recreation to their portfolio of land use. Millions of recreators actively seek wide open spaces for bird watching, photography, hunting, fishing, horseback riding, and many other farm and ranch activities. Owners of farm and ranch properties are partnering with Recreation Access Network Land Trust. Land Trust is an online platform connecting recreators with landowners for outdoor experiences on their land to increase profitability. Visit LandTrust.com BOA, as in Business of Agriculture, to learn more. That's LandTrust.com BOA.